Well, we have been in a series called The How-Tos of Human Relationships. And I have mentioned to you that uh, this is not uh, necessarily the... Um, this is not necessarily a, a in-depth, dig-down-in-a-scripture type of message. This is more of a, if you will, maybe a um, uh, social dynamics for Christians. And if you give me a minute, I had something uh, mess up on me here, and I'm trying to get it fixed. But this, this sermon is more of how we take biblical examples of of difficult situations in, in human relationships and how we apply them to our lives. So we've talked about how to make an apology. We've talked about appeals, um, those type of subjects. But tonight, how to deal with criticism. Some of you notice I put a little bit of artwork on Facebook announcing the sermon series tonight, or the title for the sermon tonight. I use Simon Cowell. Everybody know who Simon Cowell is? He is one of the judges from, well, a couple of them. I think it was first... Um, something X Factor America's Got Talent I think he's been on there what was the first one now it's American Idol yeah um, so uh, you know he is probably known to be one of the most critical people on television there is other than some of the cooking shows I'm not going to mention those some of those guys I, I don't think I can keep my cool if they come into my restaurant tell me how to do things but but tonight we're going to look at various scriptures that give us an idea of how, how to um, deal with criticism. It, it also could, uh, this could be titled in a way, Dealing with Criticism or Offering and Receiving Criticism, because we'll look at both sides of that. And don't get me wrong, I believe even though this isn't a deep dive into one scripture, it's important, otherwise we wouldn't waste our time on it. Uh, I find that some of the biggest struggles people go through in their jobs and their family all deal with, how to deal with criticism. And I'm here to tell you this is one that has been difficult for me. Um, my, um, I guess my fault, my default is if someone's given me criticism in the past, I'm working on this, but I start to try to formulate the, the, the battle plan for how I'm going to excuse myself because I don't like to be uh, critiqued uh, verbally face-to-face. And it was amazing when I put this on Facebook, some of the response, because I tagged a lot of people. And I got a response like, what are you trying to say, Pastor? That was a quote. <laughs> what are you trying to say? He's saying I can't handle criticism. And, and others, you know, uh, I don't think they realized at first that I had tagged about 50 people. But we tend, to, we tend to get a little edgy when we start talking about criticism. There's been seasons in my life when I've been fairly free of criticism. And I have to tell you, um, those can feel like peaceful and uh, peaceful times of my life. But that's all depending on what's going on in your life. Now, when I was away from the Lord and you surround yourself by people who are doing the same things you're doing that you shouldn't, they're very complimentary of your bad behavior. But if you were to show up around a grandma and grandpa or someone who, who just has that inkling that you're doing the wrong stuff and they start to critique your behavior, it gets really uncomfortable. There's also been times in my life that I've been, seems like my criticism inbox is getting inundated with mail. And those are very uh, struggling times, but they also can be the strongest times of growth in my life. What I'm finding is if you don't have uh, wise critics in your life, then you're probably not growing. Because if we surround ourselves by only those who agree with us, whether we're right or wrong, 
then we're not going to grow. We're going to continue making the same mistakes over and over. I mean, I enjoy peaceful waters, don't get me wrong, but it's the rapids that get you where you're headed. Anybody ever canoed down the buffalo? I mean, you, you get real proud of yourself when you enjoy, uh, avoid that tree that could drown you, you know, and you're going through the rapids, and then you get to nice, smooth water, and that's nice, but you realize, hey, this float is going to last all day, and it's 100 degrees. I'm going to be baked like a lobster if I don't get moving. So the rapids push us along. There was a minister by the name of Jamie Buckingham. He spent most of his adult life in ministry. He was a well-known author. He passed away in 1992, but um, he authored over 45 books and was a regular columnist for Charisma and Christian Life magazine. But the late Jamie Buckingham said, th said this. He said, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. The truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. Isn't that the truth? It does make you miserable sometimes. And you know, this evening I'll try to give you some helpful hints from the Bible how to give and receive criticism. And I'll add some of my own observations. But we really need to focus on Scripture and the examples there if we really want to learn how to deal with criticism. So go ahead and turn, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs chapter 17. You ever had those Proverbs kind of weeks? Like, you're not really doing real good in your Bible study, and, uh, you know, it's like you just need those little short quips to, to tell you. What. <laughs> Hopefully this one will fit for today. Proverbs has a lot of great uh, wealth of uh, instruction. Proverbs 17, verse 9 and 10 says, He who covers over an offense promotes love. But whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. A rebuke impresses a man of discernment more than a hundred lashes of a fool. And then Proverbs 19, verses 20 through 21. Listen to advice and accept instruction. And in the end, you'll be wise. Many are the plans in a man's heart but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And then uh, towards the beginning of your Bible, uh, Exodus chapter 18, starting in verse 13. Exodus chapter 18, starting in verse 13. The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening, when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you're doing for the people? Why do, you sit, why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me and seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. i got to tell you, would that not be exhausting? Your job all day long is people come, tell you what so-and-so did, and you need to figure out who's right because you know God's word or God's laws. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law replied, what, are you, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live 
and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Verse 24, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Wow, that was a great bit of wisdom. Can you imagine Moses was thinking, that was pretty smart. You know, his load just got a lot easier. And then 1 Samuel. If you flip over a few more books, a little ways over to 1 Samuel. Chapter 19, 1 Samuel chapter 19, just, just a few verses, verses 4 through 6. Now, now, if you're taking notes or you're kind of keeping little notes, uh, some of these it might be good for you to go back and read the whole context of the story because I'm going to hit some highlights. This is a little shorter passage I'm reading you. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all of Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. And then one more, 2 Samuel. I'm just going to flip over to the, the next book. 2 Samuel, verse 19. I'm sorry, chapter 19, the first eight verses. 2 Samuel 19, the first eight verses. Joab was told, The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, The king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal into in who are shamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Jacob went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men. You Who... Who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines? You love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that it, you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be your wor the worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. And the, when the men were told, the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. So this king, he's, he's, he's moaning over, 
over his son. But, but literally his, uh, his military men have fought and put their lives on the line to save everyone else. So he's, he's having this morning, this pity party off to the side, making it feel like nothing they did counted. And he has to be reminded, hey, maybe if you aren't in charge of men, you could do that. You can go off in your corner when nobody's depending on you and, and have your time. But right now, you're a leader of many. You need to step up your game. Let's pray over the rest of this message. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to dig into your word and to, to learn how to handle criticism, Lord, and do it your way. I pray that you would open our eyes to those things that might need to change in our lives. And God, that you help us to apply your word daily so that we might become closer and closer to being Christ-like to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'll tell you that this series isn't because uh, any of these have been anything I'm saying. Well, we're dealing with a lot of people who can't handle criticism. There's a lot of ungodly criticism. It's just this is a series I felt uh, good timing. So if you're feeling pointed out, believe me, I have nobody in mind when I prepared for this sermon. But the first thing, there's, there's some things that, that we need to understand. Our criticism has to be appropriate and well-received. And we must do certain things the right way. And the first of which is we must properly assess our level of appropriate involvement. So that's a real nice way to saying, find out first, is it in your business? If not, maybe you should butt out. If you were here last week for last week's message, if, you're, if you remember us talking about making an appeal, there's a certain aspect of making appeals where you need to learn. Is it really something you need to be involved in or not? And this is one too. Before you offer up criticism to anyone, figure out first, is it any of your business? Are you butting in where you don't belong? Do you have influences with the person you are confronting? Do you have a special insight or insights into the situation that could help them in a new, unique way? You know, now this is a hard one because I'm giving you some things to think about if you're offering up criticism or thinking of doing that for a brother or sister in Christ. And sometimes we really don't have a reality in mind. Well, you know, no, I'm not their spiritual leader. You know, no, I'm not their friend. But I just happen to notice when they come in church, I happen to notice the kind of clothes that they wear. And I just feel that it's the Lord's leading me to share with them, to critique their clothing, tell them what I think they should wear to church. If the answer to those is negative, I don't, I, I don't have any business in it. I don't have influence with a person. I don't have any special insights or anything special that's unique to the situation to be able to share. Then probably I should just stay out of it. And I try my best to stay out of things um, and I'm the pastor. I know sometimes it may not seem like it, but believe me, there's times when I'm trying to stay out of it and someone won't let me. <laughs> but, and I certainly understand with, with what God has tasked me with as being a shepherd here, there are times when I certainly have a right, if you will, as pastor of our church family to speak into a situation. And yet, I, I don't butt in unless I have to. I don't want to get into it. You know, you guys might have a different idea, but to me, if I can get up, and eat my cereal, if I get time to do that, come to church, listen to worship music, get ready early for a sermon, talk to a few friends on the phone, people stop by, Woo, it's going good. Now, if I could do that every week, all week, it would be the best. 
But unfortunately, people have situations come up, and sometimes uh, I'm in a situation where I have to depend on the Holy Spirit to help me speak into a situation. But if the Holy Spirit isn't prompting me to deal with something, believe me, I'm not going to be in it. I don't have time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? So if I as a pastor must confront a situation, then perhaps I could counsel you, um, you know, if I'm slow to get into those, then I could probably counsel you to please be slow to jump into other people's business. When you feel like you are got to offer criticism, even though you think you're helping, be slow to it. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. Make sure that it is your business or that you have some kind of influence. We can remember those biblical examples, those stories I just read. You know, Joab is Absalom and David's relative and the general of Israel's army with a high level of responsibility. And he fully understands the situation of David and Absalom and he has special insight into the soldier's morale. He feels both impelled and compelled to rebuke the king's behavior or there will be dire consequences. You know, you can almost see a little comedy in what's going on there because he throws this little thing in there and says, listen, if you don't do this, you're probably not going to be leaded anybody by this evening. Everybody's going to resign their positions, basically. They're tired of your, your you know, they just, I'm sure their soldiers are wiping uh, blood of their fellow soldiers off of their, their uniforms. They're, they're caring for families that they serve next to their family member and and you can imagine, this is, real, this is war, this is battle, and this is something significant. And he understands that if, if the king wants to sit there and waller over his own loss, instead of being the leader that he's called to be, he's not going to be leading anybody. Jethro is Moses' relative. And he really raised him as the man he would become. And so Jethro has a particular gift for administration, and because of that relationship he has as his relative, as someone who helped raise him, and the fact that he has a gift for administration, and the situation with, with judging was apparently threatening to harm Moses' health and the morale of the Israelites, it was good that Jethro stepped in and said something. I mean, seriously, if you think about it, and if you've ever led people, you can seriously look at that situation and think, man, I need more Jethros to come around and kind of assess what I'm not doing that's real efficient and say, Hey, pastor, you, you might could take some stress off if you do this or if you do that. When I walked at, worked at Walmart corporate office, I was there when they started doing the, uh, and I can't remember the whole term for it, but you get a green belt or white belt in learning how to look at processes and improve them. And they'd look at things like, I remember example, they looked at the photo labs and how, whether they were efficient or not, how they ran. And so an outside source would come in just take an overview of how they were doing their work and getting accomplished, and they would look for inefficiencies in it. Now, that's a form of criticism. They're coming in and critiquing. Now, how many have ever worked a job for a long time? You've always done it a certain way, and you get a new boss, and they come in and say, that's not the way we're doing anymore. You know, I used to get aggravated at that. Think, who does that boss think they are? We've been doing it this way, and we've been happy and I can't help it that the last boss was fired and that you have this, uh, this chip on your shoulder come in and just change things to show you know something. And, you know, when, when you're starting out working jobs, you kind of have that mentality. And then later you start, man, if you work into a management position, you're thinking, oh, maybe that's why the last boss left. They were hiring them because they're the ones that know how to make it better, right? So a little bit of maturity, a little bit of learning that criticism can be good. It can be effective. It can be helpful. 
Some of you are looking at me like, you have no idea. I still think that boss is a jerk. (laughs) But then we see Jonathan. It was Saul's son and David's best friend. And he had been present in the victories. I mean, he saw him slay. He saw David as that boy slay the giant, right? And he sees this. And now Saul wanting to kill David. And then so many words saying, are you nuts? First of all, okay, as a boy, he kills this giant when nobody else wants to step out, and you're all proud of him. And now you want to kill him? Don't you think God might let him cut your head off too? You know, I mean, I'm ad-libbing, some, I'm putting some things in there that weren't there, but I'm just thinking his mind must have been racing, like, Saul, what is your deal? So that was good advice, that was good criticism. You see, there needs to be compelling reasons and authoritative relationship to make the criticisms acceptable to the recipients. And they, and they will respond favorably. They need to be compelling reasons. You need to have some type of authority in the relationship, at least on that topic, if nothing else. And unless you have some profound level of responsibility in the issue, you may simply be getting something off your chest, and that's all you're doing, but you're sure not going to gain uh, any leverage or, or depth in your friendship with that person. Another thing, anger absolutely invalidates criticism. If you offer criticism out of anger, it's not going to be effective. Pretty much nullifies your attempt. If you're angry, then you will simply be making a protest. But valid criticism is made out of the position of responsibility. I've seen this, and when I'm thinking about this, I've thought about a time when, uh, and I use Walmart again, because some of you have been through that, and they have the grassroots meetings, or the when you sit down and it's your chance for some bigger boss to come in, or HR, and if there's anything your boss is doing bad, they're out of the room, and that's your freebie, right? You're not going to lose your job for saying something, at least that's how it's supposed to work, and you know you get to, you get to say, hey, they're, they're really treating us horrible, or maybe they're doing a great job, and you, and you appreciate them. It's not always negative, but but if you get in that situation, I've been in there before where someone gets upset about something and they blurt out out of anger some, what they mean to be just criticism for their boss and it turns into a mudslinging contest and nothing gets accomplished. Some of you are nodding because you've been there. Nothing gets accomplished. It wastes everybody's time. It leaves you feeling horrible about your job. Everybody leaves with bad morale and it really probably wasn't even accurate about the manager to begin with. The, the stronger criticism, criticism, the higher the level of responsibility must be. Just think of it as a meter. If you, if you are really dropping a heavy bomb on someone, you better have a lot invested in them. You better have a lot of authority there, a lot of respect or something, because when you go drop something heavy on someone, um, they are going to measure uh, the, the acceptability of that based on how much you've invested in them or how much they respect you. Also, the level of genuine concern must be higher than my own anger over the situation. The level of genuine concern must be higher than my own anger over the situation. In other words, you're really trying to fix the problem. Your heart's in it. You want to see something get better, not just tell somebody how it is. In each of these biblical examples, the criticism had specific reasons. They were very specific and specific recommendations for a change in action. It it wasn't just, 
you are always blowing your top, king. You're, you know what? You're just such a baby, king. You, you just always are doing things, uh, so, being so immature. And he was hitting specific points. Listen, your men have fought bravely for you. They're, they're wanting to celebrate, even though they've had loss. They're wanting to celebrate great victory. And, then, and you are spending your time on yourself over your own loss. The second thing we need to uh, make sure we're doing is evaluate your level of relationship and influence. And this is leading in from the last of the second point, but how important are you to them? You know, it's interesting. It seems that most people that are freely given criticism often, it comes from people who um, aren't the kind of people who just call you up to chat once in a while. They're not the buddy that just says, hey, just seeing what you're doing, right? Or um, they're not the one that asks you what you're doing this weekend if you want to just go hang out. Or if you want to get the families together. Or if you have any uh, desire to personally invest their time. They, you know, if you're the boss, if you pass by that, that employee all the time and hardly talk to them and all of a sudden you've got this heavy criticism for them, it's not going to matter. You've got to evaluate your level of relationship and influence. The third thing is, do you have enough credits built up with, you, with this person for your criticism to be heard? The closer you are, the higher your love level, the more meaningful the consequences, the more credibility you will have with this person. Proverbs 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Man, there's been so many times where I've had my stomach turning because I know I need to tell somebody something. It's like the Lord's put in my heart, and I'm like, they need to hear this. And then I back off. I'm like, oh, I don't want to have to tell them. And then you finally get, get the courage. You say, you know what? I've got to be obedient. And you tell them, and the worst thing happens. They get mad. They reject you. They end up, they end up going and slandering your name around because they feel like you've, you've picked on them or you've been unfair. When we bring criticism, we run the risk of our criticism being rejected and therefore our relationship being rejected. It's sad truth, but it is. If the Lord puts on your heart that you've got to bring some criticism to a brother or sister in Christ to protect them, it, they may, it may push them away. But that will be their choice. Are you willing for your criticism to be rejected? Can you say... I think this is important, but I love you and will support you all the way. Otherwise, it's not constructive criticism, it's a threat. If you're not willing to go the distance with them, hey, brother or sister, I noticed that you aren't really uh, spending time in your word anymore. Maybe it's a roommate or your spouse. I noticed you're not spending time in the word, and, and they may reject that. But you also have to be willing to say, you know what, I'll be glad to help you be accountable. I'll read with you. I'll pray with you. I'll do whatever it takes to help you with this, but I don't want to see you fall away if you're not free to receive or reject advice then it's not criticism it's a threat under pressure but if it's offered freely then you can freely receive or reject it you know there's times i've told somebody hey take this for what it's worth you know uh, i'm not trying to be wishy-washy when i do it sometimes i'm like you know i'm not sure if this lord telling me this or i'm i'm seeing something maybe not there but i just gotta tell you i gotta see when you react to people a certain way it may set them off. Oh, well, I don't do that. Okay, well, just take it for what it's worth. 
I see that, but I'm, I'm not one to hurt you. I'm not one to damage you. You know, that's for you to decide. You pray about it. Also, ask yourself, does this criticism have any hope of being successful? I think we set ourselves up for frustration by offering criticism that has no hope of success. For instance, now this hadn't happened recently, but hey, Pastor CJ, you know, I was listening to this TV preacher the other day. Man, he just, his sermons are best. You know, I think if you had time to really just listen to his sermons, they'd help you a lot. Now listen, if I can preach like the TV preacher, guess where I'd be? On TV. You guys have to hire somebody else, right? No, I'm not saying that. But, you know, if I could, if I could um, administrate and preach and teach and, and um, lead folks like uh, a brother, I forgot his name at Cross Church. I know his name. Uh, Ronnie uh, Floyd. Yeah, see, all y'all been listening to him. Ronnie <laughs> Floyd. Um, if I could do that, then I would be at Cross Church, right? And the, and the brother at the church across the street, I'm bad with names today, but if I was uh, you know, able to lead, that's where I would be. You see, God has placed you where you're at, given you the level of abilities to handle the folks he's put around you. So ask yourself, does this criticism have any hope of being successful? Proverbs 9, Proverbs 9 verses 9 through 7. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. Anger breeds anger and when we correct a mocker, they will mock us back. And that is frustrating. You know... I have learned, I've watched people that I consider wise, and there's times when I've seen people not so wise that will, will try to give them all kinds of constructive criticism as if they could lead better or do better than them. And I watch because I think about that pastor that has the, you know, he's leading a, a team of you know, 20 or 30 full-time people and they've got a, a large church and he's go, go, go every day and then someone comes up and you know, just out of their free time Sunday after church at the service, have time to tell him, you know, this is how you should do things. But I watch, and, you know, they don't come back and say, you know what, you try wearing my shoes, and we'll see how you do. I mean, all right, you could say that. You, you try doing my job for a week. Let's see how you do. But he doesn't, because a wise man is not, re, is not rejectful. He's not, he doesn't push back from criticism. He simply weighs it, measures it, decides what is fruitful, what is good for him, what is wise, what is, what is helpful. And the things he sees as foolish, he simply discards. But it doesn't turn into a fight. It doesn't turn into argument. Anger breeds anger. If he was to get angry over that criticism, it would definitely be a fight. And when we correct a mocker, they will mock us back. It'll just happen over and over again. You'll just get something started. And it's infuriating. Next, ask yourself, how important is this criticism? In criticizing our children, we must be careful. And this is something that is a, it's a hard uh, subject for me because I always, I always wonder, you know, how am I doing in this area? But if we observe that a child does a thing ten times out of eight, he does eight times well, 
then we should not focus on the 20% that he didn't do it well. If the things they are doing do not have long-term consequences, then pick your battles. Some of this, you'll remember from last week, the applied to appeals. If you believe the issue is of life importance, however, then be consistent and positive in your constructive criticism. There are some things about your kids that you can leave unfinished. And I could spend all my influence I have on my cat, kids browbeating them over, you know what, you better say yes, ma'am, and no, sir, yes, sir, which we do, but not in that way. Or, you know, you better um, make sure that you don't, um, you don't run through the house or you're not screaming through the house, and I could just browbeat them over that. And those are rules in our house as well. But I'm careful how I come about it because I can just see them you know, one day they, they marry, have their own kids, and their friends are asking them, hey, how, what about your relationship with your dad? Well, all he cared about is whether I yelled and screamed around the house or whether I said it sounded like a southerner and said, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. What I want them to say is my dad loves me and still does more than anyone else in this world, and I love my dad for that. And I'm so glad he gave me the tools because we have a peaceful home where our kids don't treat our home like a jungle gym, but they understand that it's a place of refuge and a place of of peace and quiet and there's places and times for them to run amok but in our home it's a place of solitude for us to rejuvenate and relax and and focus on each other and the lord but not to take our own selfish desires and uh, make it uncomfortable for others but we're careful how we approach that we make sure that we build them up when they do something well in the house when they're being quiet they're being productive doing something they enjoy but they're not uh tearing up the house or running around or screaming we encourage that and say, you know what, that's great. You did a great job. Mom and dad were able to relax and now let's play a game together or let's do something together. I guess I'd rather them tell their friends, my dad loved me very much and he'll love me forever than to not understand that I was trying to build tools in them for later in life. But sometimes we either browbeat our kids, we can browbeat them over all the small things so much they get numb to it and then they just don't even respond especially when you get to the bigger issues. Or we let them just do whatever they want and we bring no structure to the life. And then when they get married and have kids, that reproduces and they're just as miserable as we were because we get no peace, we get no rest. So when I criticize my kids, I save my criticism for times that they are failing themselves, their God, or their mother, not so much when they're failing me. And more times when I'm harder on them is if they disrespect their mother. That's one thing that's a pet peeve and they tell you. And I've told you all before, I tell them, your mom came first, you came second. Guess who's priority here? You better not disrespect your mom. And if I harp on things I can't change anyway, it just makes me crazy. So don't beat your head against the wall just on every little thing. Making your kids feel like every time they breathe, they're in trouble. Or every time they do just this little thing, they're going to get yelled at. In fact, I've, I've challenged myself, and as, even as today as a preparing for this, this has been in my heart for a while. And Jennifer and I don't yell at our kids, but, but there's times, you know, you don't catch yourself, you're busy in the day, and you're like, I told you not to do that. I told you. It's just that tone and that environment. And listen, I'm not all for letting my kids just become brats. But, you know, I'm challenged that my family, I want to start praying at night that God will help us to, to continue to increase the peace in our home. And that comes from them behaving and us being gracious to them. 
as well as being their parents and being authority over them, but a balance. I remember one night recently I failed on this subject with one of my boys, and it's bothered me quite a bit, and I've apologized to him, but it bothered me quite a bit. Sometimes when it, we've gotten home a little late, you know, sometimes it's a church night or something, we've, we've been here and we're getting home late. And so bedtime gets later than it is, and, and we tend to be a little more testy with them about them wasting time getting ready. It's like, okay, quit goofing around, brush your teeth, get ready for bed, you know, get your lights out, all that. But there's the hugs and kisses and prayers before bed. And with twins, I got to tell you, sometimes I lose track. If I'm in a conversation with Jen, like we were one night recently, where it was a deep conversation, they're supposed to be getting ready for bed. And in my mind, both twins had come and said goodnight, so had Lily. And then there's this time they try to find excuses to come back out and, you know, delay bedtime. And I thought both of them come out. And one of them turned the corner and started to say, Dad, and I was in mid-sentence getting interrupted for about the third, it seemed like fourth, fifth, a hundredth time, I don't know. And I snapped back. I said, I said get in bed and go. And all of a sudden, I just realized, oh, that was Caleb. And I don't think he got a chance to say goodnight. And that's all he wanted was to get his hug and prayer and kiss goodnight. And boy, I felt myself shrink. And you know what I did? I called him back out there. And I put my hands on the side of his face. And his tears were just welling. And mine were. And I said, son, I love you. And I messed up. Will you please forgive me? And he said, sure, dad. And I, tell, I could tell he still was hurt. So I put my hand on his chest. I said, son. I love you. Will you please forgive me? And, of course, Jen's over here weeping, and I'm, weep, I'm starting to weep. And, you know, it's those moments, though, I'm telling you, parents, don't let them just hear fussing and havoc. You know, look, I know I'm, I'm, I'm nitpicking a little here because some of you got far more kids than us, and you're like, hey, come over, Pastor Let's try out your little, your little talk here tonight at our house, and we'll get some sleep. You try that. But I'm telling you, don't give up on having a peaceful home. It's, it's so worth it. Our kids, you know, we, they don't run through the house. We don't, they don't, we don't um, yell, those things. I'm not bragging on us. I'm telling you that we had the opposite. And we learned that, you know what, they can adapt to that and they can start to enjoy that. Because kids want discipline, and when they don't get it, they'll push buttons until they get someone to give it to them. And they want peace and quiet, too. You don't think they do, but they do. And I'm just challenging you to pray, ask God for help, and try to bring peace in your home. Finally, how to uh, successfully make criticism. Number one, it must be done face-to-face. Little rule I learned at Walmart, if it's negative, don't put it in writing. If, if you have to tell an associate, if you have to tell somebody you're leading something that's not, you don't know for 100% sure they're not going to take it positive, don't do it through writing. Have a face-to-face. I mean, at the very least, a phone call, if there's no other way, but, but try to do it face-to-face. Because you can't see the facial expressions, you can't hear the inflection and the, the tone of the voice when it's written, and there is probably 50 different ways that one thing can be read, and chances are it's going to be read with red letters and exclamation marks, even though it wasn't written that way. We've got to be careful in how we deliver criticism. If you're not close enough to them to make face-to-face criticism, then you're not close enough. Is your setting right? Is your timing right? A letter is cold, an email is either cold or hot, but your true feelings cannot be communicated in writing. Body posture, all of that factors into it. 
Secondly, be as practical as you possibly can. Be as practical as you possibly can. Offer good alternative actions or attitudes uh, for the person. Don't just be the critic without the solution. Okay, so I got to pick, pick on anytime you have a committee meeting of any kind, church, Walmart, anywhere. If you're the guy, if you're person leading, you're going to relate to this. You'll have all the criticism you can get, but when you start asking for answers, everybody's silent. Oh, that's great. You figured out all the thing wrong with this thing we're planning. Now can I hear anybody tell me how we're going to fix it? Dead silence, right? Criticism comes easy, but offering practical alternative actions or attributes for the person, that's harder to come prepared with those, to really think through it compassionately and think, if I'm really trying to help them, I see something they're doing wrong, what can I offer them as suggestions also of how they can improve this situation? Receiving criticism, criticism, consider the source of the criticism. Is the source intelligent, wise, perceptive, loving? If yes, then you better pay attention. Now, I don't want to offend anybody, so I'm going to try to use a different example I've used in the past, but I'm going to tell you, if, if you haven't been able to hang on to, I'm just going to pick on some single people. If you haven't been able to hang on to a boyfriend or girlfriend more than a week at a time, they've been through 50 of them, you're not the person to give the advice or criticism to the person who's thinking about dating, okay? You haven't got it down enough. You, you need to figure it out yourself, and then maybe you have something to offer. Um, so if, if they are intelligent, wise, perceptive, loving, if yes, then you better pay attention. But if they aren't, um, if their motives aren't pure, then be also as quick to reject it because you don't need to waste your time on that type of criticism. Second, weigh the word. Criticism can be hard to receive, and no one likes it in the moment, uh, you know, just at a moment's notice. But if we can, crucify our flesh and pride, weigh out the issue, and receive the truth of it, then it will help us. We've got to get rid of the pride. We've got to get rid of the flesh if we're going to receive it. And if the words from that person are ignorant and useless, then just reject it and don't be weighed down by it. Um. Check with other people as sounding boards on whether or not the criticism is valid. I found that very useful. I've had some times uh, in my first couple years of pastoring that I, that I received some criticism and I called other pastors and said, hey, this is what was brought to me. Um, you've had some interaction with me. Do you think there's any level of truth in that? You know, and it's good. And sometimes it was, yes, maybe I can see that with you. No, I would, I would forget that. Third thing, if you want to reject or ignore the criticism, then count the cost, because it will cost you something. If you reject it for whatever reason, it will cost you. If it was wise criticism, then you will have to learn the lesson the hard way. And if it was bad criticism, well, you may get additional criticism or lose ground in the relationship. Fourthly, consider what action or attitude change, uh, changes need to be made in light of the constructive criticism. It's one thing to listen to criticism, but if you have no intentions of applying it, then you weren't listening. Or you might have been listening, but you weren't really hearing, right? You weren't truly um, focused on what was being said if you don't think of a way to apply it. If you don't give it adequate reflection or attention, you will lose the opportunity to get the most out of others' investment in you. Often those who give the most helpful criticism are, are investing in you. It's difficult to do, 
and they take the chance, just like you do, of you blowing them off or losing uh, your affection or attention. When someone who is wise criticizes into your life, gives you that, you have to think it probably wasn't easy for them. They probably took some time to weigh it out and think what the consequences were. Take time to think about it. Don't respond quickly. Be slow to respond. Let it soak in and think about it. The most important criticism I've ever responded to was called conviction. And this is where I want us to understand that this isn't some self-help lesson. You see, all of this I've told you tonight has a key, a key role in how you respond to the Holy Spirit. We're not doing this for self-help. You see, one of the things I've seen challenging for New Song as a whole, some of you, it's before you're here. It's just been consistent. I've seen is we need to be more sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, at least in our services. I'm not making no judgment on you as how you walk your faith during the week, but during our services, there's times when I feel like we need to be more sensitive in responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's been times when I know the Lord has put something in my heart that I know there are people in the room who have a certain issue. He may not have shown me faces or names, but I know it's there, and I know somebody needs to respond, and they don't. And you know, that's between them and God, but I knew for a fact that God was doing something and somebody needed to respond. So when you look at criticism, it's the same attributes that when we are feeling the prompting of the Holy Spirit not to do something or to do something, we're weighing and measuring it the same way. What has the Holy Spirit really done in my life so far? How much authority does he really have over me? You may not be saying that, but sometimes our response is we're kind of testing. How much authority really does the Holy Spirit have over me? You know, and we push push those limits. We've got to understand that if we notice that we handle criticism badly with people around us that are living, breathing people we can see, then probably we aren't handling well from the living, breathing God either. He may be trying to give us constructive criticism, and we're just simply turning a deaf ear because we don't accept it from anybody else either. Maybe you don't have people in your life now that, that you trust enough or that are enough influence to offer that criticism. I'm going to challenge you, you. That's not healthy for you. You should have people who you respect enough that when they tell you something's not right, that you take a look at that, that you respect them in that way. When you isolate yourself to the point where you are the ultimate authority and you think, well, I've got God to direct me. No, no, he places people all around us to help us. And when you've singled yourself out and made yourself the only person that can criticize yourself, then you're in trouble. You're in trouble because we tend to get prideful because we'll start to overlook our challenges, right? We'll start to overlook our problems, and we'll start to kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, it's okay. Nobody else really does that well either. God's saying, but I'm calling you for a greater purpose, and I've got some criticism I'd like to give you, not to put you down, not condemnation, but conviction to push you forward, to bring you closer to me, to finally get you to a place of fulfillment where you're doing what I've called you to do. And I'm not just talking about full-time ministry, where you're at your work. If it's miserable, just start to think about the interactions you have with people. God may be chipping away to get you to be the priest of that place. He may have placed you there to be their pastor. Just today, I was having a conversation about Ronnie Swadley. I said it was amazing. You know, my time at Walmart, I never saw until we came to New Song, God respond to my life so direct to prayer myself. My parents have prayed for me and seen direct answers to that, but... For me, uh, either I was just probably blind to it, but 
we had a group of people, right? Um, Annie and I'm trying to think when Ken, well, he, that was before Ken, but CMI, where we prayed for a guy and we had this group praying. And I knew that I was going to start trying to move on. And I had been praying, God, we need another guy to lead this group. I just felt like God was going to send somebody. And it wasn't long before Ronnie Suave came. He had been in full-time ministry. was out for a while, came to Walmart. And I was like, there's their pastor. And when I left, Ronnie was there. And Vincent was one of the other guys. Vincent was there and others who had been in ministry. But wherever God's got you, you need to be able to accept his criticism and the criticism from those that he wants to put in your life to help sharpen you so that you can be what he wants you to be. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time in your word and God for uh, this sermon series, Lord, to challenge us, Lord, in the how-tos of human relationships. That tonight we've looked at how to receive and to give criticism in a godly way. And Lord, I pray that you bury these messages in our heart because probably we'll be tested on them this week. Lord, that we won't even get through the end of the week before we'll have a moment of testing in these areas. And I just pray that you'd help us to grow closer together and closer to you. Help us be determined to be warriors for God in the workplace, to be priests of those places. Lord, to be willing to take criticism and conviction from the Holy Spirit. And Lord, those spiritual giants that you want to put around us, Lord, that we can receive criticism from and they'll sharpen us. Lord, let's be hungry for that, hungry for the discipline. Lord, the challenge of a disciplined walk with you. We thank you for it and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.